Okay, so obviously there's that tricky bit um, in our culture presently in verses 11 to 15. And I'll just say right at the beginning that uh, I'll get there towards the end. We'll work our way through the passage. Uh, so until we get to there, let's try to listen to the other things that uh, Paul has to say to us. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to speak uh, truth when we get to that point. Um, what I want to draw our attention to first, however, is uh, once again just the context of the letter and Paul's, Paul's aim, really. Paul's aim and Timothy's uh, place uh, in receiving the letter and what that means for us receiving it. So just a brief stepping back uh, before we start to think about, think about that. And the reason I, I want to do this to begin with is because I think it would just be really easy to, um, to read this passage today, uh, to listen to the preaching, and simply read it as things to do. I think it would be easy to do that. He's giving Timothy instructions about how to um, conduct the church, and it would be easy just to close things and run with them and be left uh, just like that. Um, but in stepping back, that will help us to see why these instructions are here and the way and why they are the way that they are. <clears throat> so first of all then, I just want to draw our attention to the word then in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I urge then, or therefore, therefore I urge. Basically, he's saying, in light of what I just said, I urge, first of all, that this happens, where he goes into talking about prayer. And what, the, what he means when he says, I urge then, just to recap where we've been, is he's just reminded Timothy that Timothy has been entrusted with a charge. And we can see that um, in verse 18. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command. He's passing on uh, the charge that has been given to him, uh, to Paul, and he's handing on the baton to Timothy. He's basically entrusting Timothy with the gospel. And, uh, but it doesn't, it's not just the gospel, it also includes um, the manner in which the church should live, so it includes the order and the godliness. So just quickly on those two things, Paul, Timothy has been given uh, the gospel, and he's been given, you know, to, at this point where we can kind of go to summarise that, that gospel message, uh, is what we see in verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, as Jonathan reminded us uh, this morning from the front, that we, as a church, and Paul wants Timothy to grab hold of this, right at the centre of who we are is we're a people who have a message, and that message is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a message of grace. It's a message of Christ at the centre, saving sinners. 
I'll just highlight that because I think that's really important. With all that happens in the church and all of our conduct and all of the life of the church, we just can't move on from that point that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. <clears throat> and that's actually going to have, that's going to be part of the driving force for these instructions uh, that he gives to Timothy in chapter 2. So that's the content, as it were, of, the, of this charge that's been entrusted to Timothy. But then so this, what I've called, order um, that is given to Timothy. And what, what I mean by that is there's an order uh, for the church. There are, um, this includes practices that the church uh, engages in, uh, and it includes priorities, where the church focuses, focuses its energy. Uh, and there's a kind of structure to how the church orders itself. That's why I've called it order. And these things, these practices and priorities and structure, flow out from and support the gospel message. And so those are the two things uh, that I just want to remind us of at the beginning and that I think help as we come into chapter 2. There's the gospel as the content and there's the kind of order for the church, how the church conducts itself and how that life of the church supports the content, the message of the gospel. And so <clears throat> before we get into our main points, um, I'm just going to show us where I see that in the letter. And that's in chapter 3, verse 15. And I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> and I think this is really key, as I've said before, um, verse um, in understanding Timothy. It start, he, his thought actually starts in verse 14. So it's chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you with these instructions, or in another translation, I'm writing to you these things that he's just mentioned, and I think that he's going to continue to mention, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. You see that? You can see there now what I've just been explaining. That is what Paul's describing there. He's writing these things to Timothy. So he's making sure he's got the gospel. But he also says, this, you also need to know how you can conduct yourselves as a church and in the church. Because the church itself supports that gospel message. <clears throat> okay, that's the setting. Now, what we're doing in chapter 2 is we're getting right and getting into the practicalities. Okay? What is that charge? I urge them, chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Straight away, we just see the priority of prayer. Right? Don't we? Just the priority in Paul's mind that as a church, we be a praying church. Um, remember that this is... Uh, um, Paul is talking here about a corporate setting, so it's probably that's probably the main application. It's not, it's not exclusive, so it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be making prayer a priority in our personal lives, but I think as a corporate picture, the church should be a praying church. Um, perhaps uh, one of the reasons is because as a praying church, it shows our dependence upon our God 
and saviour. And that really is our posture. That's a reordering of creation. That's the way the creation is meant to be. We are the creatures. God is the creator. We live in dependence on him for every breath and we express that in prayer. And so we could, you know, ponder prayer and why prayer is such an important part of the life of the church. But surely it's because prayer communicates our dependence, communicates our relationship with God, the access that we have with him. Uh, and so prayer ought to be a priority for the church. And that's what Paul wants to say to Timothy. And I think that's, uh, we can just grab that as, a, as an immediate application for ourselves. That as a church, let's make prayer a priority. And hence why we have First Tuesdays. Uh, but not just First Tuesdays. I think this verse also will help us with appreciating, um, just even for ourselves now, the prayer, the, the um, space that we give to to formal corporate prayer on Sunday. Um, that is not just a, a buffer that we use to fill up our, fatten out our service uh, around whatever you know part of the service is our favorite part, like the sermon or the singing or whatever it is that we, we really like the best. That prayer is integral, key to who we are and what we do as a church. We're a praying church. And so that's prayer, it's the priority of prayer. And he says it's for kings and all those in high places. <clears throat> they are in authority. <clears throat> Why? Why are we praying for those people? Why the focus there? Paul then says, it's so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Um, I don't know about you, but I just think that strikes me, doesn't it, that Praying for the kings and people in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in holiness. And what sticks out to me is, is the power of the ordinary. Right? It's a prayer that there might be order in the society so that we can live godly lives. And sometimes uh, the reason I flag it up that way is because I feel like it's very easy to fall into the trap of feeling like, oh, you know, what's the extraordinary thing that I... I need to be doing next, or how do I make my mark as a Christian, or whatever that might be. Um, Paul actually says, it well, seems to say here, a peaceful, quiet life, critically, in godliness and holiness. And there's great value in that, because that's what he says next. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Isn't it really important that we need to be thinking, and when we think about our own behaviour and about our lives, that right at the front is God's perspective on, on our lives and our behaviour and the world around us, rather than what the culture tells us, what popular Christianity tells us, what our friends tell us, what we tell ourselves, but that we come and we have our minds shaped by God's perspective. That's pleasing, good and pleasing in God's sight. When the society is ordered and civil so that we can live quiet, peaceful, godly lives in all holiness. But I don't think it I don't think he's just saying pray for the kings and people in authority um, simply so that we can carry on our lives as while we wait um, until Christ returns. And the reason is because that seems to be where he goes now by saying uh, verse five, because there is, well, sorry, uh, this pleases God our Saviour, but then he, in verse 4, he expands on what he, on how he wants to describe God. He wants to describe God as the one who wants all people to be saved and come, to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
And then he explains why that is such an urgent matter. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom uh, for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So uh, what he's getting there, I think, is... um, Yeah, that we are to be praying for kings and people in authority, not just for order, um, for ourselves, but I think it's going to, what part of this is going to be is so that our ordered lives and the the message that we have and the way our church conducts itself, supports and communicates that same gospel message, as that's functioning in in a society, that that is a light to the nations. That is... Um, uh, being a witness to what God has done, God our Saviour, and is the means by which uh, God is bringing people into his kingdom. And we're reminded here again, it's, I think the words here for Timothy have got the same force as chapter 1, which was telling Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and don't forget that. I think there's the same kind of emphasis happening here in chapter 2. He wants Timothy to remember that the Christian message and what's happened to you is not just for a holy huddle. It's not just for you guys to have a peaceful and quiet life. Christ came to the world to save sinners and he wants all people to be saved. And uh, I think what then happens is it's left for us to draw the dots. In previous um, studies on evangelism, I find there's not a massive amount of texts that just simply exhort us in a straightforward manner to do evangelism. Um, But there are loads of times where we're set up, we get a situation set up for us and we're left to draw the dots. What do you think would be a fitting response to a message of God, Christ came into the world to save sinners and God wants all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth? What might be um, something that's on our radar as a priority. And the reason I say that, can you spot, he doesn't, he doesn't give a kind of command everybody to do evangelism, does he? And I wonder if the reason why God's done that is because it sort of, there's something that comes from, from us, it wins our heart, the urgency, we can feel it, we can connect the dots and see this is a message that needs to go to all. Uh, this might be, um, seem <clears throat> offensive to some, uh, because obviously, at one level, it's very exclusive, isn't it? There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and mankind. And the truth is, that's right. There's no way to get around that. It really is uh, exclusive. There is one God, and there is one mediator, the man Jesus Christ. And what that means is that it means that this message uh, is not just um, it's not just a message for the world. It's an urgent message for the world. It's a necessary message for the world. Uh, There is only one God and there is only one mediator, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself. But but, the key, so it's exclusive, but who is he? He gave himself as a ransom for all. So it is exclusive, but it's actually offered to all. And we have to hold on to both of those things as we... um, as we as a church um, witness to Christ. Now, I just want to take a little sidebar here from the flow of the text and 
zoom in on that word ransom. And the reason to do this is because part of the joy of Christianity is that we get to trace uh, the riches of Jesus Christ. And ransom is one of those points where we get to explore um, with some more of the contours of the work that Jesus achieved on the cross. And one of the words that we're given is that he gave himself as a ransom. This is what he says in uh, Mark chapter 10. We've just told them a bunch of times that the Son of Man is going to die and he's going to rise, he's going to die and he's going to rise. But the key question is, what is the significance of the death? What does it all mean, Basil? He's going to die. What? As a ransom. He gave his life as a ransom. Now, that ransom word uh, signifies two things. Uh, payment and release. They're two ideas that are attached to that word. It's, um, it can be used in uh, different things, can be <coughs> um, ransomed, but whatever has been ransomed will in some way be held by something. It might be held in a judicial sense, so that it's um, under the sentence of something. It might be held in the sense of being possession or property <coughs> of someone, in the case of a slave. Or, um, but either way, the idea is that um, things that are ransomed, before they're ransomed, they are somehow held, bound, in the possession of something else. And the other is uh, release. And so the ransom is the payment, and it's an appropriate payment, that releases whatever was held. They're the two ideas that are attached to it. And when it comes to us as Christians, I think there are two um, aspects in which we have been ransomed. And I think we can say that we've been ransomed from sin, and that in two respects. I think there's an experiential dimension to our ransom, and there's a judicial aspect to our ransom. And what I mean by that is our, the experiential dimension is that we find that sin enslaves us. We fall in love with something, we give ourselves to that sinful thing, and we find, actually, that we thought we were the masters, but lo and behold, when we try to get ourselves out of it, we realise, actually, this has got a hold of me. I'm actually a slave to sin, um, in that experiential sense. Um, and addiction, I think, would fall into this kind of category. We open up ourselves to something, we find ourselves, I've, I've gone so far in here, and I really am tangled up in sin. Um, that's one dimension. And I think <clears throat> the other dimension is the judicial dimension. So by sinning, not only do we find we tie ourselves up, but actually we hand ourselves over to the judicial penalty of God. Sin is not um, neutral. Sin is not simply self-harm. It's actually um, an offence. It's a breaking of the law, God's law, which puts us into that um, uh, position in which we are bound over to destruction. We are now in the side of um, uh, being uh, under the sentence of death. <clears throat> And there's the beauty, that Jesus is our ransom. And that by his blood, he paid for us to be released uh, in these two dimensions. Uh, he frees us from the penalty of sin, and uh, he frees us from the power of sin. Albeit, not perfectly until the new creation, 
But nonetheless, he still frees us from the power of sin as we, as we are um, transformed by the power of the Spirit uh, and liberated uh, more and more day by day. So the key thing I just want to highlight here is before we come back into uh, focusing on our text um, is that Jesus' blood is a payment, is a ransom. He gave himself as a ransom for us and his blood was effective. That's what I want to highlight, just as the last thing to say on this point. His blood was really effective. It achieved its purpose. He really did buy us. Um, out of the penalty uh, and power of sin. And I think we can meditate on that. We can think about that when sin, guilt, shame crowds in upon us uh, that we've actually been ransomed by the blood of Jesus in the past for those sins. We are no longer in debt. We're no longer bound over into that position because Christ's blood has paid for our release. That's one of the beauties uh, of Christ. Trace those riches and rejoice uh, in what he has done for us. Okay, moving back into our text, um, starting going back to verse 8 now, where still prayer is still the focus, and Paul says, therefore, <clears throat> so he's just he's, he's urged for prayer, he's kind of given reasons. This is partly why prayer is such needs to be such a priority. And then he's just reiterating, therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarrel. Um, and so what he does now is now he starts to take the move uh, in this direction where he speaks specifically about, um, about male and female, about the genders. And so there's a shift there. It's not, at first of all, it was just about prayers for all people. Um, and there was the man Jesus Christ. Uh, is, is that what they've got? Yeah, one man, um, Jesus Christ. But now the word that is used here uh, for the Greek really is men. There's another word that can be used, uh, can be sometimes people, sometimes man. This one is specifically men. So it's a specific here uh, to men. I want the men everywhere to pray. Again, I don't think that's exclusive, as I mentioned about the corporate dimension of prayer. It's not only exclusive women don't pray. Uh, we know the women pray from 1 Corinthians, it seems to be the case, uh, that they're praying in the corporate setting. Um, but it seems to be an emphasis here. Why the emphasis? Uh, perhaps it's the case uh, that he wants men to lead the way in prayer. That he wants, uh, within Paul's world, uh, of how he thinks about male and female, I'm just putting that out there, that he, it may be that he wants the men to lead in that way. Uh, another possibility is that um, if we can uh, use gender stereotypes, it might be that prayer is a, uh, is a, is a humbling thing and it, is, um, it distinctly captures weakness. And if men might be prone to uh, showing off in strength or being independent and doing things on their own, um, prayer would be one of the ways in which they show uh, dependence and weakness and humility. Um, and I, I'm going I'm to go so far as say I'm happy to talk in that language because I think I'm happy to use uh, gender stereotypes and speak uh, with generalities 
because I think we see them in the world. And I think that's a fair way of talking at this level. It's not saying that only men are prone to pride or that only men are prone to being independent or that only men are prone to um, trying to show off strength. It's just a generality. Um, and I wonder if that's why he's specifically focused on men here. And the other thing that leads me to say that is that he also says lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And again, it, is it the case that if there are different vices that the sexes are prone towards, could anger be one that men are prone towards? And that he wants them to uh, focus here on a holy lifestyle in the manner of their prayer. Lift up holy hands, make prayer a priority, but not with anger, not with disputing, um, but in a holy lifestyle of integrity um, and in peace. So, that's what he then says to the men. And I suppose, in light of that, men amongst us, an application would be, let's make prayer a priority. Let's make prayer a priority in our lives uh, and make it the case that actually, as men, we are leading the way in being a prayerful people, in expressing our dependence and our weakness on God and showing that that is the mar a mark of the Christian life. Uh, we are dependent. So that is, he's got something to say to men there. And then verse 9, he turns and he wants to say something uh, to the women. And he wants to uh, say, Timothy, if that's where I want men, that's, a, that's a one thing I want to say to the men. I want them to focus on prayer. Uh, to the women, I've got one thing to say to focus for them, which is, uh, starting in verse 9, I also want, or likewise, I want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess uh, to worship God. Again, I don't think it's exclusive, but I don't think I'm too far out from saying, generally speaking, women are the more beautiful of the sexes. Now, I realise, I feel like I'm like, you know, it's like shredding on eggshells, you know, on this, like, on this particular topic. So please don't shoot me down in flames, okay? If you're listening on here or even if you're in my immediate audience, I think Paul speaks in generalities. And I think it's okay to speak in generalities. It's not to say that there are... I don't, Paul is not saying at this point, by the way, there are no men who want to adorn themselves with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls or expensive clothes. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think if you get, if you get one shot and you're aiming at generalities, you... I don't think he's gone too far wrong with with this um, instruction. I think, it's, I think it's fitting. If you're a man and you're trying to do the same thing, I think the application would be the same. Um, but that's not what he says here in particular. I think it's a clear instruction. Uh, I think, uh, interestingly, it's a grey area, the way that he mentions it. What constitutes elaborate? 
What constitutes expensive? Where's the line? They're not really lines, are they? There are not these kind of objective lines that you can say, whoop, that's too elaborate. And I think that means that it gets to the heart and that each person's going to have to uh, wrestle with for themselves. How am I really adorning myself? Am I adorning myself outwardly? Or is my, the interest of my heart and my focus um, my good deeds and my attitude, my posture? <clears throat> now, I'll also say, I think it's probably fair to say that there is a point where you get too far, though. And actually, what's her name? You know, one of these uh, this celebrities I saw the other day uh, is a billionaire. If she was wearing £40,000 worth of clothing, I think, I think that just constitutes expensive clothing. It doesn't really matter if for her it's like not really expensive. I think it actually qualifies. I think she's adorned herself with costly clothing. Um, and again, because I think Paul could just speak with generalities. So, that's the instructions for men, a focus for men and a focus for women. And again, uh, for the women among us, I think we, we take that um, uh, application. Uh, where is our heart um, drawn towards? How are we trying to uh, adorn our lives? But also, I want to say to the men at this point, men, are we contributing to that? Uh, in what ways um, are we contributing to a culture in which external beauty is what it's all about uh, for the women. Uh, that makes them feel as though that's how they need to live, to find value and worth um, you know, in their lives. So I think it's something for us as men to think about as well. All right, coming into the final turn, we're going to think about uh, verses 11 to 15, where Paul then, having mentioned something to the men and something to the women <coughs> comes in to clarify uh, roles. Obviously this is a thorny issue uh, and if uh, anybody wants to talk more afterwards I'm very happy to chat more or if you're listening on the audio likewise do come and grab me um, one Sunday and let's talk about it. Okay so this is what he says. In verse 11 he says <coughs> Uh, it's interesting. It's interesting here that what we have in the NIV, he says, uh, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I think that that misses, that translation misses the uh, imperative force. Uh, it's a third person imperative. Uh, let a woman learn um, in quietness and full submission, which I think when translated that way, gives it more of a feel of... Um, Maybe there's a little bit more forcefulness for it for Paul, uh, for Pete, Timothy, perhaps a little bit more initiative that he needs to take for them. Uh, let the women learn. And I think there's a real positive statement there and one that we need to not just glide over. That verse 11, I think, is, is, a, is an important statement. Allow the women to learn. And, and I think we can go so far as get the women learning. He's going to say in Titus, to Titus, sorry, um, that have the older women teach younger women. Uh, I think that's going to be really important. We need women. I've got one in my midst <laughs> who I know is learning and praise God for it. Um, uh, this is good and right and they should learn. 
Um, so he says, allow this, and then he says, but don't allow this, uh, which is his second uh, thing there in verse 12. So allow a woman to learn in quietness and full submission, but don't allow, uh, I, I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Okay, so that's what he says, um, don't do that. And then he, uh, he gives his reasons. But just for clarity's sake, verse 11 is allow this. Verse, sorry, yeah, verse 11 is allow this. Verse 12, I don't allow this. And verse 13, 14, this is the reason why. And verse 15 uh, is kind of rounds out his discussion on, um, on how women should conduct themselves in the church. Okay, here we go. A few points to make. Uh, first of all, is that it's important to remember the context in which he's talking. So when he says, allow them to learn, but don't allow them to teach, we must remember that this is a letter to Timothy who um, is overseeing the church while Paul's away, and he's giving him instructions for how the church should conduct itself. Remember that in chapter 3, verse 15? I think, it's, I think the context is the institutional church context. It's not just a blanket statement uh, saying women shouldn't teach or exercise authority, full stop, Ex- and, and thereby extending it to, say, school, um, in a school context or um, some other sphere in the world. I think he's talking about the church context. Uh, the second thing is to, uh, and, and likewise, is not just a, a blanket statement that the woman uh, shouldn't teach, it's specifically over a man, and as I've already mentioned, Titus um, uh, shows us that uh, he wants the women to teach, uh, the younger women as well. Secondly, uh, just to clarify the word quiet, in chapter 2, verse 2, so further up in our passage we've just been in, he says that he wants us to pray for the king's knowledge and authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. You see that? And the reason I flag that up is because we've got the same... Um, Uh, The same idea here, but he doesn't want us to live mute lives. He wants us to live uh, lives that are uh, submitted, submissive lives, uh, undistructing lives, lives that are um, working with the order that there is in the society. And I think that's what what is meant here when he says, um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Again, so... Because the word has just been used above and didn't mean mute, it means um, she must be she must be having a posture where she orders herself appropriately in the context in which she's in with submission. Um, and again, because in one Corinthians eleven we see the women praying and prophesying uh, what appears to be in the gathered city. Okay, some objections to Paul's statement. Uh, you've done well to get this far. I'm going to do objections, and I'm going to quickly set out the positive case. It's all going to be too brief, and then we're going to make a final statement. So I think you've got five minutes left, and I apologise if we've gone a bit long. Okay. Very fast. These are the objections. One objection is that it's inconsistent. Paul's instructions here are inconsistent with other parts of the Bible. For example, Galatians or Colossians, which says that there are now no more male or female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. First thing to say, I think, is that on this, uh, to this objection, is that Paul clearly does continue to use distinctions. 
He refers to slaves and gives them instructions and masters and gives them instructions. He continues clearly to um, uh, speak specifically to men and to women and he doesn't just treat people just blanketly like people. So I don't think that that is what Galatians and Colossians are talking about. I think a better reading is to see that the primary focus in Galatians and Colossians is about salvation. Um, salvation, in salvation, there is equality in Christ. Um, or as Paul can put it, uh, sorry, Peter can put it, um, that women are spoken of as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Uh, there's an equality there. Uh, second is that this statement by Paul is simply unjust. It's just, un it's, it's, it's just plain inequality and it's unjust. Uh, firstly, I'd say uh, that teaching is not about value. So uh, why would uh, the, I guess the ball is in the other court, why would it be that teaching, somebody who teaches or exercises authority is therefore intrinsically more valuable than somebody else? It doesn't work with parents and children. Uh, a child is to submit to its parents. Does that mean that the child is intrinsically less valuable than the, present, than the parents? I just don't think that works. It's not about value. Uh, you might say, um, and the, other, the second thing is, it's not about power either. Uh, leadership is not about, um, uh, therefore the men get put into the places of power. Uh, cr Christian leadership is servant leadership. It's actually a position of service, and that should be the posture of all Christian leaders. Uh, I speak to myself. Uh, it's also not, a it's not about gifting. It's not about saying that the men are more gifted than the women. Uh, it's about order, God-given order, um, in the church, uh, and that I think is the priority. Um, and lastly, life is just not equal. That's just the way life is. Uh, and another example of that is, I'm just not going to have a baby. <clears throat> that just won't happen, because I'm not a woman, and man and woman are just not equal like that. And so I think we'd do well just to think about the ways in which life is not equal. Uh, third objection is that this, what Paul is saying, is specific to Ephesus. Uh, reasons why I don't think that that is the case is because his reasons for giving the instruction are rooted in creation. Uh, I think that um, his instructions to Timothy as a whole here seem to be foundational uh, instructions for the church. And I think, in fact, we'll see in just a minute that the evidence, I think, points the other way. Uh, I think that um, uh, we're going to find that it's actually more relevant now um, what, than perhaps we uh, originally or can immediately see, that, that it is just as relevant now for us. Uh, and the fourth and final objection, and I'm sure that there's more, uh, is that it is just an obscure passage. It's too obscure, so actually we shouldn't really build any doctrine of it and prevent women from teaching or exercising authority um, in the gathered church. Um, two problems with that are, I think, that um, historically, I don't think it's been read um, always as such an obscure passage. There's a kind of consistency in, historic, in interpretation historically uh, that males have occupied the um, position of um, teaching an elder in the church. Uh, and also, I think that it just really fits with the consistent message of Scripture, uh, that right across the board we see a kind of consistency uh, with um, male headship or male authority. Okay, there's some of the objections. Oh, no, sorry, there's two more. One of them is that, uh, um, sorry, 
one, two, three, four, five, six. Number five is that it's pejorative. So basically, what he's saying is he's not actually he's not actually prohibiting authority full stop. What he's prohibiting is domineering, and hence the NIV here has or to assume authority. The ESV doesn't have assume; it has exercise, uh, and that's a debated point there. Um, but I think that uh, for reasons within here, um, I don't think that it fits the syntax which means I don't think that it fits the structure of the sentence to take it as um, this exercising authority to be seen as a kind of domineering or negative authority, uh, because teaching in 1 Timothy is a very positive thing to do. And the structure of the sentence is they're both in the same case, so you have to teach or to do this other thing, this authority thing. And so I think it's better, it fits better to, to treat it, read it as both being positive things, but they're things that a woman shouldn't do. And the second would be the actual meaning of the word authority. Uh, that's disputed there, whether it should read assume authority. Uh, and the evidence probably goes the other way. And that's just not me saying, I'm not saying, don't you see it in NIV. That's the CSB and the ESV both go that way. Okay, and the last one is, it could be saying that there are, these are just temporal norms accommodating to the, the culture uh, there in Ephesus. Uh, again, the creation um, is where Paul defends it, and also in his, uh, if we follow through that hermeneutic, I think we get ourselves into lots of knots. All right, the positive case. Why has he put it this way? So, I think in the context of uh, 1 Timothy, one of the problems is that there's a faulty teaching about creation. So in chapter 4, verse 1 to, through to 3, he says that the time is going to come when teachers come in and they're teaching, they're taught by demons, um, and what do they do in verse 3? They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And later in chapter 6 he says, um, God who gives us all things to enjoy. Right. So I think that part of the problem in, in, uh, in the context of my Timothy is that there is a faulty understanding of creation. And Paul is wanting to affirm the goodness of creation and the goodness of creation order. Uh, the second uh, thing to um, remember in forming a positive construction of these verses is that the church mirrors the home. That's what I've already said in chapter 3, verse 15, which the church is the household of God. So the church is a household. It's the household of God. And there's a mirroring that happens between the way things are in the church and the way things are in the home. And one of the ways that things are in the home is that there's male headship. Ephesians 5 is super clear. Um, man is Christ. Woman is, uh, um, represents the church. And that's the order in the home. And I think that's meant to be mirrored in the church, which itself uh, is communicating um, something important about creation order. And so... Uh, <coughs> When we take those two things into consideration, the third thing to, to factor in is that uh, from, a, from a biblical theology of leadership, we see running right through the scriptures, uh, we see the principle of male leadership. Um, <coughs> generally speaking, in Israel, there are 12 apostles and they're all men. These are the ones that Jesus appointed. He wasn't afraid of being culturally radical. He could have easily appointed a woman if he wanted to. Um, and of the instances where we do see women uh, teaching in the Old Testament, um, I think that they are, a famous one would be Deborah, but ironically the point of the book of Judges is that things are not the way they're meant to be. So sure, Deborah leads in Judges, but 
Judges is not a good book to be forming a picture of what the society is meant to be. She actually appeals to a man and says, come and do the leading, and he is a coward. He doesn't want to do it. He says, only if you're going to go with me. Um, and so she takes that place. Uh, and she's a heroic woman. We should praise God for the work of Deborah. But I think from, from, from the, the proper pattern is that it's meant to be male uh, leadership, and, and that includes the teaching. Um, and so what I think is happening then, <coughs> now fi my final two points, is that what he means is um, when he says Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman. Here's what I think is happening. There's a kind of drama that the church is living out. And when you see a woman teaching, the, pick, the drama that is unfolding is... Hold on, that is the drama of how sin came into the world. That was the flipping upside down of the natural order. The, serpent, the order was that man was created first and then Eve. Man was given the instruction and he was given the, the primary responsibility. That's why Adam is called the sinner in Romans 5. That's why the theology of Jesus is that he's the second Adam, not the second Eve. And so... Um, Adam has got that primary responsibility. He's the one that um, who sinned and death, sin and death entered the world, not Eve. Even though, theoretically here, she might look like the one who was the first to sin because there was a responsibility that lay with Adam. So that was the proper order of things. But what happens is the serpent comes in from the bottom and flips the story up the other way. And now the woman is giving guidance to the man. And so I think then that Paul is looking at it and saying, we've got a faulty doctrine of creation here, and one of the things that's happening is um, the drama that's, that gets unfolded, that, gets, that happens when the women are teaching in that authoritative position, as the church is gathered, as an institutional church, and it's displaying the gospel, is that the narrative <coughs> there, the drama is, that's reminding me of the fall. That's how the fall happens. The man is not, has not taken that responsibility to teach as he should have done in the garden. And so that's why, he think, that's why I think he goes to uh, the creation narrative. Not necessarily that women are more easily deceived than men. Uh, it's because it's, it's portraying the wrong picture. And then finally he says, but women should be saved uh, through childbearing. <clears throat> and I think there what he's doing is he's saying, actually... If you remember the story from, from Adam and Eve, what was promised to the woman? What was promised to the woman was that through your offspring, the serpent will be crushed. So through, though childbirth is now going to be painful and, this, and, and childbirth is cursed, there's actually going to be something, um, there's a sort of hopefulness about giving birth. Hence, when Eve gives birth to her first son, she says, I've got a son. Because there's a kind of, ah, through the giving birth of, a, of the woman, uh, the woman giving birth, a child is going to come who's going to crush the serpent's head. It's redemptive. There's something about giving birth, there's something about childbearing that I think continues to play out that drama of, that's right, the woman had a role in redemption. She was going to bear the, the serpent crusher. 
And so I think Eve's story then gets, full, um, gets uh, fulfilled, as it were, with Mary, who the Gospels will start with the birth of Jesus, and um, all the Catholic um, problems aside, really key role. She gives birth to the Messiah. And it's almost like childbearing, in a sense, is redeemed. And so I think that um, what he's saying there is, to in, in a, and this is why I think it's more relevant um, than we might first think, is I wouldn't be surprised if the real context is that um, home life and childbearing is getting downplayed in the context that Timothy's in. Does that ring true? Does, does that uh, um, get us to think about anything in modern society? I wouldn't be surprised if actually that is what's getting downplayed. Rather, what it is is children are becoming a bit of a, a bit of a. They're either um, what's it called a commodity, like a little. Uh, they're like um, toys or um, uh, decoration, and we just have one or two of them as we carry on our career here. Uh, or they are to be, you know, avoided at all costs, so that we can be the CEO or do whatever it might be, or um, not be encumbered by the children. So I, I wouldn't be surprised actually if the context is much more fitting for this instruction. What he's doing is saying, creation was good. God's order was good. And actually, far from minimising giving birth to children and doing good in the home, which we're going to get to in chapter 5 when he talks about the widows, actually, there's something really wonderful about giving birth to children. She'll be saved through childbearing. Do that and play out that redemptive drama of remembering the um, the one who gave birth to the uh, snake crusher. Right. We got there. It's basically two sermons. All of this is to say the life of the church in all of our structure supports the gospel. It's a pillar and a foundation of the truth. And the order then that we live out together is not just arbitrary, it's communicating something. And we're affirming God made the world good. And, but he also made um, distinct roles for male and female. They're good. Childbearing is good. Home life is good. And when women teach men in the congregational setting like that, it actually communicates a reminder of the fall, not of redemption. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners.